This is Horam with Horam's Quorum. And my guest today is Sachin Shivaram. Sachin is the CEO of Wisconsin Aluminum Foundry Company. And Sachin's credentials are just absurd. You can look them up. And I'm just so fascinated with his training and experience that he ended up running an aluminum foundry in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so we talk about the choices that led him there. And it's those choices themselves were, were really fascinating. Uh, but what's so interesting about Sachin is his curiosity, humility, and how those have been compasses for him uh, as he's progressed. So I found a lot to learn from him in this interview, and I, I hope you enjoyed as well. Well, hey, Sachin, thanks for taking the time to talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really, never done anything like this before, and, and an honor that, uh, that even you'd ask. Uh, I'm flattered you say that you're the first CEO that I'm uh, I'm interviewing this way. So this is going to be a little bit different the conversation. You're making it easier for me because you're South Asian and an attorney and you're from Wisconsin. So there's those some things that overlap in my world. So that's uh, a good first step. Yep. Now you grew up in southeastern Kenosha or southeastern Wisconsin near Kenosha? Yeah, kind of close to Kenosha. I'm surprised that you know that. Well, obviously through your girlfriend. Uh, uh, well, and Kenosha, of course, is in the news. Right? Um, but yeah, I grew up in Glendale which is a, a suburb that's just north of Milwaukee, about mm-hmm. 10 north of Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're in Brown County, which you were telling me is anything but. Yeah, I, w- I always joke to people that, um, so we live in Brown County, but it's a totally non-diverse place. It's, it's uh, I was just looking up the demographics. I think it's 97% white. Uh, I mean, we don't encounter um, anybody who's not, white pretty much in our daily lives. And so two funny things, actually. One is the joke that I tell people always is that my wife and I put the brown in Brown County. Uh, she's, she's Nepali, so we're pretty much the only uh, brown people around. But uh, my older son, when my younger son was born, uh, you know, when, when the baby came out, he was like overjoyed. And we were asking him, like, why, and he was three at the time, we were asking him, like, why are you so you know, happy about the baby? And he said, because he looks just like me. He, he thought that the baby was going to come out blonde just because that's what how everybody looks. Yeah, <laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, I didn't even realize that he was conscious of that, of, you know, kind of not looking like the rest of them. Um, uh, and also yesterday night, my wife and I were watching the video from my younger son. He's three. Uh, his uh, Christmas pageant. So it was all via, via video because, you know, you can't have the parents there and everything. He's in in-person school. Uh, and it's just like 50 white kids <laughs> and my son, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 but I love it. It's, uh, I actually enjoy the lack of diversity because it helps us to meet people. You know, people remember us always and remember us at a restaurant and it's just, it's easy. It's, it's nice to be the, be slightly special that way. Um, my wife finds it a little, little isolating. Um, but, uh, no, it's just an interesting, very, very different from where I grew up. And I grew up near Milwaukee, you know, far more diverse, um, mostly, you know, black and white, but uh, also in a community of Indians. Uh, there are a lot of, there are enough Indians who speak just our language, Kannada, uh, that we could really only socialize. I mean, we could have a social group with just them, uh, which I didn't realize how odd that was, you know, until we, we moved to a community like this. That's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I, I grew up in a, I grew up in central New Jersey, so uh, you know where there's a huge concentration of of South Asian people, and I, I knew that was special, but I didn't appreciate how fully special it was. And it's funny we were saying about the name thing too, because yeah, like Horam Nike, like I feel like when I I didn't get a sense until later in life, but like yeah, it, it is such a distinctive name that it actually boosts the odds of someone remember your name rather if I was say named Kevin or something like that. You know, you're a lot more novice. So yeah, I agree with you, but there are some interesting non-obvious benefits to standing out. So tell me about, I'm really curious about what brought you back to Wisconsin. Like what was the opportunity that you saw by taking the helm of the company that you're at? Uh, well, a lot of things. And one, I love you know, all my, my comments about lack of diversity aside, I love the state. You know, I just loved growing up here. Um, I like the culture, you know, all the little quirks that your girlfriend was mentioning, you know, before we kind of got on the air here. Um, just very endearing. Uh, people are unassuming. Um, 
you know, there's not a lot of social contact in, in daily life, you know, because you know, rural areas and, and population is spread out. And so that makes people, I think, truly appreciate and treat as unique each individual connection that you have, you know, even at the grocery store or whatever. So I just all these elements of the culture I always loved. I uh, knew I wanted to come back. Uh, my parents still live here. Um, and so that was another another reason to want to come back. My brother and sister live on the, on the West Coast. Um, and so it was kind of my wife and I lived elsewhere for 20 years. And, and it was always at the you know, I always knew we were going to somehow come back because I felt it was the right place for us to raise kids and everything. Always kept my 414 number, which is from Milwaukee, yes. my all throughout. Somehow also kept my Wisconsin license plate kind of illegally in all the different other places that we lived, just because I knew, you know, it was going to, it was going to happen. So I've always been looking for that opportunity. Um, I was working in Houston uh, prior to move, you know, moving back here. And um, I was at an industry conference and, and, um, anyway, long, long story short, um, a former uh, boss that I had worked for, he had a business in Wisconsin where he wanted to make a leadership change and have a new person run the business. And so he asked me, you know, would I be interested in doing that? And I was just totally on board right from the minute that we started talking about it. Um, I, that business was based in Marinette, Wisconsin, which is at the far north of the state, actually on the border with the upper peninsula of Michigan. Um, I had never been there. Um, I'd actually really only been further north than Milwaukee once or twice, you know, for a Packer game or something, but had no idea what the rest of the state had. Never thought we'd live there. Always thought we'd lived in Milwaukee. We'd live in Milwaukee. Um, but, you know, came back to the state to, to run that business and move to an area that we didn't know and have just loved it. And so what is the opportunity that you sense in is there something specific about manufacturing in Wisconsin specifically or manufacturing in general? I mean, I think that's an industry that you had to focus on for some time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother story. Uh, when I was in law school, um, you know, not really feeling the idea of being a lawyer. I, I did a summer at a law firm in Milwaukee, you know, cause I always thought, well, okay, we'd come back. Um, and it was great. It was a great firm, met a lot of friends. It was a big law. You know, I know you've worked at big law firms. It was, it was excellent. Um, but I just was not feeling it. I was in my second year of law school, you know, when you normally kind of apply for the internship that where you're going to end up after law school. And I read Atlas Shrugged at that time. And I always, and you're the type of person who's probably read this book. Have you? I have read it, but I'm familiar with the premise. Okay. Uh, it carries a lot of political baggage. Like any, generally when I mention it to people, you, you know, and they say, if I say Atlas Shrugged changed my life, then it's like, okay, you're a libertarian. Uh, I actually, couldn't, didn't even know enough to appreciate the political overhang of this book. Um, in fact, it's totally opposite my own views. But uh, what I loved about this book, you know, was it's a story about two industrialists, uh, a man who runs a steel mill and a woman who runs a railroad. And it's kind of their story of how they uh, follow the, um, the idea of making money and making money is good and, and it can create good for, for even as you pursue your own individual interests, it can create good for, for society. And, and so that's kind of what they're, what they're living out. But I just loved that idea of steel. Uh, I read it and that's, that's what I took away from the book was, was uh, industry is, a, is, I need to work in steel, was basically my, my absurd epiphany that I had reading that book. So I wrote to an Indian steel company, uh, it's called Mittal Steel. Um, and it was becoming the largest steel company in the world. And I literally, I just wrote him a letter. Uh, and I said, I want to work in steel. You know, I read this book uh, and I'm intrigued. And so, you know, a, a guy there who, who I still keep in touch with, you know, took a risk uh, on me, you know, offered me an internship for the year, for the summer. Um, I went to work for the company in, in strategy and I just, I loved it. It was everything, every. Everything I hoped it would have been by reading that novel, Atlas Shrugged, it was that, you know, the people are just quirky and ambitious and the scale of operations is huge and molten metal and everything. So after that summer, I was just like, I am, I need to work in, in steel and that's what I'm going to do. So I went back to that company after law school and, and they bought a company in Mexico and we moved to Mexico and that, you know, kind of led, led to different things. Um, and so actually now I, I, you know, run a foundry, which is a metal melting operation, but it's more, as you say, kind of in manufacturing. So I've kind of evolved from basic steel to, 
manufacturing, but broadly in the same industry throughout. And you know, what I love about it is just the tangibility of the product. Um, you know, I mean, I'm I'm in my office, but I can my office is shaking right now because we had this shakeout machine right next to my my office outside in the plant. And I love that. Yeah, I just love that I'm here where things are getting made and I can walk outside and touch, you know, what we do and talk to our people. It's just that it, it really motivates me. Um, and so I really couldn't imagine working in any other field, uh, frankly. Um, so, so yeah, so that's uh, kind of how I'm in manufacturing and, you know, built up contacts and a career in that industry. And that's how I ended up uh, here. That's wild. I, I've never heard of anybody so inspired by a book to like launch their career from it in that way. And, and just in that specific way of like riffing on it, uh, that's fascinating. And I, I actually went to school in Pittsburgh, so I've got a healthy appreciation for it. Right, you went to Carnegie Hall. Yeah, so those are two yeah. very much industrialists who, you know, um, yeah, and, and their impact on the town is great. Um, so yeah, there's, um, there's definitely good things about industry. So I guess I'm interested, there's so many ways I can take this, frankly, that because I think the choices you made are just super interesting. But so what is unique about picking uh, the path? Uh, and forgive me if I'm painting things really broadly, because you, you, you made some distinctions between foundry and, and manufacturing. And, and so I, I know I'm not aware of, of the distinctions between these parts of this. Um, but you know, what's interesting about pursuing that path versus you know things that are really you know very... Um, a lot of people are directing their attention to say tech, you know, you know, if, if the practice of law or let's say the tech world, you know, these are different spheres that, you know, maybe have a lot more attention, a lot more people going to it. You don't hear so many people talking, you know, people that have your education and your training going in droves to manufacturing. So what do you think people are missing? Uh, hmm. Well, let me answer, let me say two things in response to your question. I think one is, um, I'll, why it's a, why it's exciting for me is kind of the reasons I've laid out. But specifically in my career, also it's I found that you know my intellectual capacity really is not you know I mean I have friends who 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 are way like a thousand times smarter than I am and I can't hold my own in their in conversations with them, and they're the type of people that do the really complex things you know tech and all that. I, you know, I'm kind of lower on that and manufacturing is something I can really get my head around. You know, it's, it's simple, you know, metal working is, 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 is surprisingly easy. Like metal is, 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 you know, infinitely malleable, you know, and so you can correct mistakes, you can, um, you know, rework the metal all the time. So it's, it's something, it's actually a very simple kind of brute force oriented type of thing, which really matches my intellectual capacity, I find. Like I can I can hold my own in this thing. So that's kind of the small reason of, of what people may be missing in manufacturing is it's actually something you can really wrap your head around and understand supply chain dynamics, the economy of it from end to end. Uh, as you get to these more complex things like insurance and you know uh, finance, there are very, very few people on the earth who can really understand it end to end. And so it's harder to be kind of a master of that of that realm. Um, but the other thing that, I, the other answer to your question, I think that that's more relevant to the discussion here is, it's not that anybody's missing anything about manufacturing, I think. You know, the, the lesson that you're showing us through your own career choices and what I'm doing is following what truly inside you excites you, you know? And if you find that thing, you're gonna be successful in what you do, you know? And so, manufacturing for random because of random occurrences in my life where i grew up a book i read somebody i may have met has become that thing that really excites me uh and and that's yeah that's what i have so so i think when people when you say like what are people missing about manufacturing it's not about my industry per se it's about uh people maybe missing you know the the going after what you true what truly excites you um and instead kind of being on a, on a path that leads leads you it, itself through to other things you know through whatever the momentum of your career and and kind of public expectations and things like that so i think having that courage to do something off the beaten path that doesn't look prestigious um uh you know that is that is what people may be missing um if especially if it's something that that they that they truly feel passionate about mm, yeah that makes a lot of sense and you mentioned uh, there's 
you mentioned, you know, the, the politics and how your politics is different from the perception people have about Atlas Shrugged. And, you know, I know that you hosted Joe Biden a few months ago, like when he was campaigning and I read an article about it and, and, you know, apparently you were instrumental in this. Like you were the one who brought him there because you really felt really strong that he should spend some time there. Tell me about that. Like what, what made you so dedicated to bring him out there and, and, you know, tell me about that whole experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love your love your questions. By the way, there's just so much to say in response to each. But uh, what you know, first, we love where we live, as I talked about it. Yeah, and but we don't. I don't necessarily love the political environment of where I live. You know, I feel a little bit out of place, and I feel that some that people where we live support some policies that I think are not in our best interest. So I we, we I kind of have an active interest in changing the the cultural feel of of uh, the place that we live in. So, you know, we, we donate to certain, um, you know, political candidates or to charities that, you know, kind of do things that, that we believe will change our, our area in a positive way. And I think, so for that reason, that's my interest in, in politics, local candidates and larger candidates is I want our area to be more supportive of some of those, those types of people. Um, why, why I wanted Joe Biden to come was, well, I support Joe Biden. Um, and I felt that living in this area, um, the national party and the and his campaign were maybe th- being too confident about what was actually happening on the ground. I mean, the amount of energy for Trump was insane. And he kept flying back to Green Bay, holding rallies. And I, and people weren't scared enough about that, I felt. And, and, and in fact, the, the vote margin ends up showing that. There's only 20,000 votes in Wisconsin was very close. The polling showed, you know, Joe Biden up by eight or nine. So I was telling people in the party that Northeast Wisconsin, which is the swing area of the state, is not, I just want to tell you, I want to ring the alarm bell that it feels like, you know, Trump is going to win this area in a landslide. We need to do something to change that. And so I tried many different ways. Um, I wrote an, uh, uh, an opinion piece on manufacturing that uh, the, the woman who helped me get it published at a, at a Harvard magazine, she was the um, uh, teaching assistant to Larry Summers. And so I think she showed it to him and somehow, you know, that got into the campaign. There's another friend of mine who runs an energy business in Wisconsin, in Texas. He saw my op-ed and he sent it to the campaign and I've been, I was writing letters to the campaign. So somehow everything came together and, you know, uh, Biden decided to visit. Um, the other, the other thing is, uh, you know, I, re- I wear my politics on my sleeves. Like, so we have uh, a company Facebook page where everybody, we have 450 employees. Most of them are on it. Um, and I'll put my political stuff out there. Most of them are, are have a different view than I do. We are actually a union shop. We, we have three unions. You'd think they'd be more Democrat, but actually they're, they're not. You know, they're, they're kind of that, that working class uh, supporter of Trump that, that people talk about. And so we'll have it out, you know, politically, like, you know, when I brought Joe Biden here, like a lot of, a lot of them are upset, but, you know, people know that I don't hide, you know, how I feel about politics. Um, uh, and so all of that is part of, you know, kind of why I wanted to bring Joe Biden, because I feel strongly about it, want our community to be different. I felt the campaign was missing out on a key area of Wisconsin. Um, and, and it was just amazing that it, you know, got to happen. What surprised about the visit? I'm sure you had some expectations about it, but you know, what kind of surprised you about the experience? You know, the, the, the thing that surprised me the most was the actual, you know, the personal interaction with Joe Biden. Um, you know, my, my first, and I actually hadn't, I haven't told anyone this. I, my, my first uh, in, reaction was a little bit of panic because he, did feel as old as people were saying he was, you know, and, and, and it was such a weird environment. We just, you know, he came and immediately, you know, he started telling us about growing up in Scranton. It was just, you know, me and him talking and there was like, you know, reporters around and things. And we kind of launched into this conversation that really wasn't making sense to me. I just didn't know where it was coming from. And so I was panicked. I was like, oh my God, like, you know, he really is how the Trump, campaign is painting him out to be uh and 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 so you know i took him through the plant and you know i was talking him talking to him but really we weren't having a conversation um 
it looked like we were, which was the thing that, you know, the media made this thing out to be a fantastic visit. Like the, the, the images are on commercials and campaign videos and the news and everything. Um, but the sound obviously wasn't audible to anybody. Um, and also we had the masks on. It was just, it didn't inspire a lot of confidence, you know, the the, the personal interactions. I felt very panicked, in, you know, during that thing. Um, also the speech that he gave, um, at our facility, you know, he, there was a teleprompter, there was a mask, we couldn't really hear, there was like no energy in the room, um, because there were only, you know, five of us in this giant, you know, room. And so it just, the whole thing left me with uh, a, a sense of dread about, you know, what was going to happen. And this kind of the, the, this Trump was going to keep hitting this feeble Joe thing. And, and it was going to be, it was going to be bad. Now, the one thing that really, um, saved me, uh, saved us on that visit, I, not saved us, but changed my mind a little bit uh, at the end of the visit was we were standing outside um, and after all the visits and the reporters and everything was done, it was at the end of the day and we were waiting to get back into our offices. So we couldn't get into the office while he was in the office. Uh, he's actually sitting right in my office. Um, and so we we're standing outside and then we we're watching the motorcade and the motorcade started to pull out. There were multiple SUVs that looked similar. So we didn't really know which one he was in. So we we're kind of waving at one where we thought, and then the last one pulled out, we saw that, okay, that was him. You could clearly see the outline of the shadow. So we're like waving and everything. And then he stopped the whole motorcade. They backed up uh, 30 secret service agents, like poured out everywhere. That he had this amazingly candid and charming interaction with us. Um, and to me, that just, it put me at ease because it was like, that's the guy that everybody has been talking about you know, and, and that the world needs to see, and he does exist. You know, I, I think the all the first eight hours of the visit, I was just panicked about, you know, him feeling old. And and that thing restored my my faith, you know, in, in him as a candidate, that, that, that interaction at the end of the visit. So that's what I was talking about. I'm glad that story bounced back. Uh, I was yeah. pretty worried there. So, okay. So another thing that's kind of interesting about your niche is that, you know, of course, COVID is making people think a lot more about domestic industry and, and building that up. Yeah. And so it's kind of an interesting spot that you're in. And, you know, I saw that, um, you know, your firm has really reversed its fortunes in a year and just like really it's, it's grown a lot this year. So can you talk about, I think all that seems kind of it's surprising. It's just kind of a fascinating turn of events. And so can you talk about, you know, what you think in a post-COVID time is the, is the changing role of domestic companies? And do you, how do you think, do you think there's going to be an enduring focus on building up domestic industry like manufacturing? Yeah. Um, you know, I thought, I thought there was going to be a change, you know, earlier this year when it, when, you know, not just COVID, but all the trade stuff that had been happening for the past several years, uh, it felt like domestic manufacturers were going to kind of move towards reshoring their supply chains and buying American. Um, you know, we got it. We, we reached, we were contacted by a major truck manufacturer who had been always buying their metal parts from Europe and India and China. And now they want to find a domestic manufacturer. And so I got, you know, I got excited that, okay, actually this is really happening. Like people are going to focus on, on making an America again for a variety of reasons of necessity, but also because they kind of want to. Um, but then things didn't pan out, you know, like that truck manufacturer, you know, saw our costs and they were like, okay, this is good, but it's going to cost us like $8 million to retool and reconfigure our supply chain to be buying from you. And it's not really going to give us much of a payback because your costs are kind of the same. And so they didn't, you know, and that got me to thinking that uh, reshoring is not going to happen automatically. You know, so first let me ask you, answer your question on the, on the reversal of fortunes. Yeah, things have roared back. I mean, we are way busier now than we were before the pandemic. Um, uh, for some pandemic related reasons, like we're making motorboat engines for because everybody's buying motorboats now. I don't know why, you know, they're buying RVs because I don't know why they're buying RVs, but uh, so some, some consumption of patterns have changed, but also just generally, you know, things in the industrial economy have really come back. I mean, yellow goods, uh, agricultural equipment, all of that stuff is, is, has come back nicely. So, so there's kind of a secular 
rebound in the in the industrial economy that's been happening. Uh, steel prices right now are the highest they've been in 15 years. Um, so a lot of good stuff is happening there. But the reshoring, that kind of shift in production to America, uh, is not happening. You know, to as far as I can tell. Um, and and this episode of this truck manufacturer got me to think that. The reshoring is not kind of on the glide path of the economy. It it will happen only if policymakers make it happen. You know, the 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 easy choice for manufacturers is always going to be outsourcing production to lower cost countries. Like there's just no barrier to that. And so tax credits, you know, buy American policies, um, uh, you know, trade agreements, these sorts of things need to happen to make. Uh, you know, manu- get manufacturing to reshore. So I, w- I would just say, I mean, our business strength right now is not because of reshoring. There has been no fundamental change in the manufacturing economy. It's just been an increase in demand, you know, overall. And, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what role, I mean, just the first thing comes to mind is like labor and the cost of labor. So can you talk a little about, and you kind of mentioned the unions and some of the, you know, the open kind of, um, you know, challenges, you know, working with unions, maybe. Can you talk some more about relationships with labor and, you know, your views on labor laws and, you know, any, any changes that you recommend there? Well, I mean, I actually really support unions. Um, we're, you know, vocally in support of unions. In fact, we, that was a lot, a lot of what the Joe Biden visit was about. Um, you know, we have three unions. Two of them are locals of the United Steelworkers, which is kind of what you think of as those historically difficult unions. Um, but I've actually, you know, I worked mostly in non-union environments, and I find this union environment so much easier. You know, because the interaction between, uh, or the interaction about compensation, is uh, much more streamlined. You know, whereas before, if I'm in a non-union plant. I used to run, a, prior to, to this business, I used to run a business in California where uh, it was a non-union environment and I could not walk through the plant without just getting bombarded about wages, you know, and when are we going to redo it? I didn't get paid this, you know, it's just constant. And and here we don't have that cacophony of stuff. It's streamlined, we negotiate um, their rules and it works, you know, and you got to get the rules right. I mean, we have, we have annual contract negotiations. We just finished our contract negotiation this year. Um, so getting those rules right is, is, um, is key to the game, you know, um, now what, what could help, I think actually strengthening, um, rights to organize labor would be beneficial for us. Um, not only us, because we are a union shop, hopefully, you know, it expands unions, but I also believe in their mission. You know, I think that their mission is let's, you know, make sure workers get their fair share of of the profits um, in a company. And you've, I don't have the statistics, I don't have the data at hand, but you see that clearly, uh, you know, as equity markets have been going crazy, you know, um, you know, uh, worker wages have remained stagnant for the past 20 years, you know, and so that's simply because more of the earnings of a company are going to owners, to equity holders, than they're going to labor. Um, and I think unions can help can help reverse that. So, you know, I feel very positive about unions. We've had a good working relationship with the guys here. Um, and, and actually, just, just this morning, I was I was remarking to uh, our human resources person. So yesterday, I was in Indiana. Uh, we were looking at we're looking at acquiring a business there. And that business, sim, same they do the same stuff we do. Their starting wage is fifteen dollars and twenty five cents, and our starting wage is twenty one dollars. Plus, we have you know, pension, and we have um, healthcare and everything. The effective wage ends up being about twenty-seven dollars an hour. And so, for this company in Indiana, the effective wage, with all their benefits, is probably like seventeen. So we're paying ten dollars an hour more. Um, but I don't. I didn't come away from that thinking. Uh, you know, well, we're at a disadvantage. But for my first thought was that seventeen or fifteen dollars, fifteen fifty that they're paying, fifteen twenty-five that they're paying their workers is an unsustainably low wage. And, and if we acquire this company, we are gonna raise the wage because it's just not gonna make sense. We can't have, they have 50% turnover at their company for obviously because they're not paying anything. So it's not it's in our best interest as a business to have wages that are more sustainable that enable us to re- recruit people that will stay. Um, but the other thing I was telling her was, uh, I don't think we'd pay any less if we weren't unions. So it's not like the unions are really sticking it to us. 
they have um, guided us to keeping wages higher. Um, and that's enabled us to attract and retain the great people that we have. Like we don't have an issue getting people to work at the work at the company. We keep we hold on to people for decades, uh, and that has efficiency benefits, you know, because people really know what they're doing. So, union or not, we would pay what we pay. I think it would it would be the right would be the right move for our company. Um, so, and I don't even know you know where what the original question was, but I I feel very strongly about about unions, uh, support them, think they do well uh, for, for society and for business. It seems to me that, you know, that another challenge is thinking about the role of technology and automation. And so how do you balance, you know, investing in people and, you know, building it, like reskilling workers and, you know, investing in their launch performance and then also investing in technology to make things more cost effective so you can win more business. Yeah. How do you think about that? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't think, um, we don't have, at least I haven't felt it. The, the, uh, I haven't felt that we're in the tug of, oh, we need to modernize, but that's going to put people out of jobs. Um, at least in the, in our business, the more we invest in robotics, we have robotics, we have an automated line. We, we are installing a new, a brand new, you know, fully automated, uh, line right now that just enables our people to be more productive, you know, so we won't have any fewer people um, in June. Once that new line comes on board, it won't put anybody out of work. It'll just enable them to produce more castings than they used to. I mean, we, in the, in our facility here, we used to have a thousand people working here and we used to produce maybe a third of the amount of castings that we produce today. Now, so we've tripled production and our, our workforce has, has, has halved, but not because we put people out of work. They just kind of, you know, we've lost them through attrition. But so I don't feel that kind of daily tug mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, I, I'm going to buy this machine and eight people are going to be out of work. It's I buy this machine and those eight people can now do this other thing that is that is more productive. I hear that. Um, so, I, you know, I don't see it as a, as a conflict, really. But, um, you know, it is it is we have to be doing investing in machinery and things like that. Uh, otherwise, we will get left behind, um, you know, for, for cost reasons, quality reasons um, for everything. You know, I'm asking you questions about your decision-making, how you think about things, because I'm trying to figure out what impact legal training has on your thinking. And I'd be kind of curious. I mean, you have counterparts, you know, that don't have your legal training. So I'm just really curious how your thinking differs from other peers that don't have that experience. Maybe that's one way to answer the question or just differently. What do you think the benefit of your legal training has been for you? Uh I think your question um, assumes a level of legal training that actually I don't have. Um, yes, I went to law school, and yes, I passed the bar. Uh, I, you know, and I'd love, like you always hear this. You know, you hear people who have a JD and and who don't, who are not working in in law, and say, "Oh yeah, but you know, we do. We have a lot of contracts, and yeah, that helps me." Honestly, like the class I took in contracts doesn't help me understand our labor contracts or supplier contracts any better than any other average person, you know? Um, so I don't think it actually helps my, my work really it helped my thinking though. I it helped my thinking in that, that I became a much more structured thinker, um, during law, you know, law school. I, I think before law school, I was just kind of like more scatterbrained. Uh, and, and yeah, and I, and I realized I'm very scatterbrained still. Uh, but the, so the structure, well, the, the, the real benefit, I know this is cliche uh, of law school, was the friendships, you know, the, that network of people, not just the professional network. I mean, a guy from my law school is now the deputy treasury secretary for Janet Yellen, uh, the head of the National Economic um, Advisors. He was also in our class. And this is a class of like 150 people. These guys are, you know, they're doing really amazing things so that the pref- the professional network was great. But even better than that was just the friendships I developed in law school were so mature or just, you know, really connecting with people um, in a way that I don't think I did in college. Like I have great friends from college, but we didn't connect on that kind of intellectual and emotional plane like like I felt we did in law school. So I, what I came away from law school was, um, you know, that the structured thinking and these and these relationships. And for those reasons alone, I would definitely do it still. Um, 
even if I knew kind of what that I wasn't going to practice in the law, um, it was worth it. You know, and I'm also curious, again, from the advantage of this kind of unique role that you're in, um, you know, what do you think your experience as someone who's South Asian, like what impact do you think that has on how you view this business? Like, what do you think someone who didn't have that life experience, you know, like how would they think about the business a little bit different than you do? I'm just kind of curious if you can speak to what it means to be a South Asian that's running this you know, 110 plus year old aluminum foundry in, in Wisconsin. I mean, just what, what do you think is distinct about the perspective you bring? Yeah. You know, I think being South Asian has everything to do with it. Um, and in general, being an outsider to the industry, like when I came into the industry, metals industry, I wasn't an engineer. And so I didn't know the basic stuff, you know? And so it, but it, it leaves you with the same feeling of kind of being an outsider, um, not having the advantage of the cultural knowledge of, you know, I mean, the, the, the environments I'm in, it's all like, you know, the other peers of the businesses that, that our business interacts with, you know, 55-year-old white guys, golf, it's the classic stuff. Um, and I'm at such a cultural disadvantage with them. Like, I don't know how to behave. I don't golf. Like, I go there, I'm very uncomfortable. Um, you know, the jokes, it's just all very different. Um, and it, and it ha- you know, has me feeling like an outsider, which then provokes um, two things in me. Um, one is uh, curiosity. You know, I think, I think I, and I see this in my son as well, my elder son, uh, it's just like you observe these people and you're like, how do these animals behave? You know, like you're just trying to understand it and you watch them and you, and you try to learn from that. And that kind of because if you're of that culture, it's just like, it's, it's just there. You're not observing people as much. And, then, and that's why a lot of these guys, and apologies, I'm, I'm obviously blathering in this podcast here, but, you know, a, lo- a lot of these guys, you go to these meetings and they're just so bloated with themselves that, you know, they're just talking about themselves and they don't, they don't actually express curiosity about others because they're all, they're all part of that world, you know? And I think being not from that world makes you ask questions and observe and just be curious. Um, so same thing, you know, not being of the metals world, I had the same, you know, you ask the same basic questions, observe, and, and it really becomes a learning experience. Um, the other is, I think it makes you humble. I mean, you, you, you know, like you don't feel entitled. Um, you know, like when I walk into, to, you know, a meeting, you know, I'm younger and I'm also Indian, like you just kind of, assume that you don't belong, you know, and that can actually be good. I think it just makes you a little more humble. Um, same with the lack of knowledge. Like I assume I don't, I don't know what these people are talking about. So I got to learn and, and question my own first in- instinct and things like that. Uh, so I think that that humility is, is good, you know? Um, so I think your question about being South Asian, you know, in a, in this strange environment has, has everything to do with, uh, with, with, with it. With how it feels. Yeah, I like that. I really like how you are taking something that seems like an ostensible weakness and just totally flipping on its head and turning it to a strength, you know, that just that curiosity, humility. I guess building on that, then, so then how do you, you know, develop your authority? You know, what's your credibility and authority with managing people and why do people, you know, trust your judgment and, and follow what you say? You know, what is it that, what are the things you do that make it easier for people to do that? I think it's, it's that listening um, to people. Uh, you know, I, because of my deficiency in knowledge, I cannot be the type of, you know, boss who says like, do this, do that. You know, like it's just not even within me. So, so, you know, our leadership, our executive team meetings are really discussions about, what to do. There's no decision that's coming from me to them. It's, it's us, all of us talking about it and learning. Um, so people feel that their voice is, is valued. Um, so, you know, there's that, there's that listening. And then, um, you know, the, 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 the judgment is maybe a skill that you know, comes from maybe legal training or whatever, but it's okay. Once all the facts and things are out on the table, offering a logical, um, conclusion from that, you know, being able to, like, I do this a lot in meetings where, where everyone's kind of talking in their silo. Uh, and then if you can bring it together and tell people like, what is the story of what we just talked about? Like, 
Yeah, Bob said this and Michelle noted that. Uh, and how do those two things interact together? And if you can kind of lead them to a common insight from what they them said, themselves said, I think that 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 makes people feel reassured. You know, when, they, when you're kind of able to explain a fuzziness to them, uh, it makes them feel assured and they believe in, in, in what comes next from that, which may be a decision. Um, so I think that that is that is that is where it comes from, as opposed to, you know, from a place of superiority and knowledge um, and experience. You know, this is making me think some more about something you said earlier about, you know, the ability to step into this niche and, and have, you know, a strong end-to-end -end understanding of the entire chain that you're in and thinking, you know, I think that's really interesting because I think as an attorney, I think a, a quandary that a lot of attorneys face, particularly if you're a large firm, is specialization, you know, and, and you know, what it means to be at a large law firm is to specialize, that's what they're paying you for. Um, and it's got its benefits and it's got its risks. And it sounds to me like, you know, the path that you're on or the sphere that you're in is more about being a generalist. So can you speak to how have you thought in your career about balancing specialists versus being a generalist? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I haven't deliberately thought about it or made decisions. I think um, the path I've, gone on a becoming a generalist is more of the lack of specialized knowledge you know i i can't manage our engineering department you know i can't <laughs> can't go out and sell i can't run a machine you know there's only kind of one job that i could do um uh but you know i think i have the affinity for people for listening if things like that that somehow are the skills of that general that is a, at least a generalist in business uh requires but it is a, it is a hard path in that there aren't a lot of generalist jobs. You know, there there aren't a lot of jobs for someone like me who is like knows a little bit about a lot of stuff, but is not really a leader in anything. Um, that's the you know, so it's a risky career path. Uh, the the tried and true is to actually have skills. You know, I mean, the people I respect the most in my daily life are those ones who just know what they're doing. You know, like I can go to our engineer and he just he has that his area just down pat. Um, and, and I, I really, you know, I respect that. I wish I could be that. Um, so, you know, I guess not exactly an answer to your question is the generalist is the only path that's available to me really, uh, in this, uh, in this industry that I'm in. In, in your industry, which you know, I find very fascinating, but I know very little about who's a leader or, or what's a company that you really admire. There's one called Steel Dynamics. So they're based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, you know, really interesting set of people who, who started it, they were specialists. You know, they knew they had this technology of how to melt steel more efficiently, melt, you know, scrap steel more efficiently to make new steel. And they created one factory in Indiana and it was very successful. And then they, they never strayed from that path. So they made a ton of money in that Indiana factory then they built another one just like it. And then they built another one, another one. And now they're like the third largest steel company in the United States, you know, several billion dollar company led by the same group of people, the same founders still, um, and fantastically successful. And, and they never strayed, you know, one of the common errors that uh, you see companies do is that they, you know, think their dominance in their niche means that they're smarter than everybody else and they can do other stuff better than other people can. And so you see businesses integrate um, up and down the supply chain or they might buy adjacent businesses and they fail, you know, and, and you saw U.S. Steel, you know, you're from Pittsburgh. U.S. Steel has a very different path than Steel Dynamics did. U.S. Steel expanded into mining. They expanded into distribution. Uh, they didn't, uh, you know, build on their core niche um, and, and advance their technologies. And now the company is, you know, I mean, then now the company just bought one of these mini mill facilities in Arkansas and maybe is trying to get a, a new kind of new lease on life, but highly unsuccessful, you know, uh, as a path. The steel dynamics, they, always, they only did what they knew. They, they don't even sell their own products into the market. They, they recognize that selling is not a core competency. So they engage a kind of a group of trusted distributors that sell their products for them. Um, you would have thought, you know, their natural inclination would be like, okay, I'm making this. 
I might as well control how the steel gets all the way into the market. But they had that humility to kind of know that, okay, what, what are the limits of our competitive advantage and knowledge? Let's stick to that and just keep being successful in that. Um, so I really admire that company. Um, and and they're just they're just tremendously success, successful. Mm. You know, when you're talking about, you know, this specialized process, it occurs to me it's probably a lot that you know about steel that, you know, the average person doesn't. So what is it that you want the average person in America to know about steel? I feel like there's all kinds of things about the steel process or understanding the role it still plays in our society. But like, you know, what's changed your perspective? Because let me put it this way. Like, I remember after it took high school physics and I had a basic understanding of Newtonian mechanics, you couldn't, you know, like when I drove over a bridge, I was just like, oh, like I have a much better sense of, of what this bridge means, what these physical structures are. And of course, you know, these bridges are so many of these things are made of steel. So like you probably see the world differently now that you're so immersed in steel. It's so like, what is it that you are seeing? Yeah, uh, let me tell you a little funny thing about that. So yeah, I mean, it really did change the way I view the world. Um, and to the point that it became kind of like a running joke in law school that we'd, you know, I'd always be sending people like YouTube videos of steel and, and all that. And, and so a, a, a road trip game that I played with first my wife and, who doesn't really care about steel at all. And now my kids is, as we drive down the road, we try to point out different things made of steel and whoever gets the you know, most number of different unique things that they can point out, you know, wins the game. Uh, boring to everybody else, but I, you know, I don't have a case and like a newfound understanding to say about steel. I mean, maybe because what I know I, I feel is is already out there the knowledge. But what I would say is is if you pull the average person, uh, they people don't think we use steel in the country anymore. Like many people say, like, oh, do we use still use steel? Like they equate it with with coal or something from the past. And actually we're using, you know, we use about 140 million tons of steel in this country annually. It's a lot of steel, like every single person is consuming, you know, half a pound of steel, half a pound of steel um, or half a ton of steel. Um, but uh, I would say the one, you know, one thing I, I would love to educate people about is that there are two main ways to make steel. One is what you may know in Pittsburgh is it's, it's the blast furnace way. So that's the way where you take raw iron ore from the ground, you, um, put it into a, a blast furnace, combine it with carbon. Coke. Yes, Coke. Yeah, carbon. Uh, coal is baked into Coke, um, which is carbon. And then that carbon reduces the ferric oxide in the, in the blast furnace. And then you out of that, you get pure iron. Then you mix it with some other stuff. And then you make steel that way. That's one way. The new way that, that all these companies like Steel Dynamics and everything are, are doing is through an electric arc furnace where they're taking scrap and 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 iron that's already been reduced through natural gas or something um then to more quickly make the steel and that has that that change in efficiency change in technology has been a step change for for the industry um so people think of steel as kind of this old line industry making making it in polluting factories you know coke and you know coal mining all that stuff but in fact most of the steel today is made in this much cleaner, more efficient recycling um, method that uh, is, at, and the United States is actually the birthplace of that technology that has kind of revolutionized the world. Um, so just a little small, you know, educational point for, for people about steel. And I, I, I would be remiss if I, to my girlfriend and to myself, if I, if I didn't ask uh, for another point of education, and I'm aware that we're running for time. So, uh, you know, what do you, what do you want people to understand that is, uh, what do you want people to know about Wisconsin? What's underrated about Wisconsin? What's special about Wisconsin? What's underrated about Wisconsin? Uh, or, you know, maybe I can, uh, I'll, I'll make you, maybe give you another option is maybe what's, what's underrated about towns like Green Bay. And I mean, I don't know if you consider Green Bay part of the Rust Belt or not, but you know, what's, what's, What's underrated about this part of, of the country? Yeah, I mean, it's it's people say Wisconsin's in the Rust Belt, but I mean, if you drive around Green Bay, uh, you're not seeing rusted out factories. Like life is busy. There's a lot of manufacturing that's happening. The labor market is very tight. You know, even in this COVID, post-COVID time, unemployment is, is less than 4%. 
Um, so these are good economies. Um, everybody has jobs. I mean, you know, who wants one generally? Um, you know, both spouses in the family are generally working. I mean, it's just kind of a busy, industrious community. Um, and, and that's what Wisconsin feels like. It doesn't feel like, you know, um, rotted out factories, people without, everybody's on disability, you know, that, that's what people think about the Rust Belt being. And it's not that. I think those places exist somewhere in the Rust Belt, but at least not where we're living. I think this economy has really done a great job transforming itself from originally kind of being a paper economy where you know paper was made to now the main industry in, in kind of in Green Bay is packaging. That doesn't really happen do with paper. You know, it's it's plastic packaging, flexible packaging, stuff you see in Costco. Uh, that is one of the main industries. So it's really been this incredible story of evolution from you know basic industry to more advanced things that really have nothing to do with the physical area where we live, but just the people have that that technology. And then last thing I'd say is, you know, to your answer your first question, which took me a second to think about, but I would say what's underrated about Wisconsin is Milwaukee. Uh, your your girlfriend knows this. Milwaukee is a gem of a city. You know, so much culture, so livable, affordable, uh, great people. You can have a house, you can have a downtown living, food is great. It's just a it's a wonderful little city. And it's changed a lot since I think I'm a little older than your girlfriend. You know, when I was growing up, uh, it was really crappy. You know, and then in the 90s and 2000s, it just 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 morphed into this amazing place that it is today. Um, and that's 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 what's underrated about Wisconsin. That's great. Yes. And I agree with you. I think Milwaukee is very underrated. I think, you know, it, it, I have a lot of affinity for Milwaukee because I think it's a lot like Pittsburgh. And it's just like mm -hmm. these kinds of towns are just like the quality of life is spectacular. I, I spent my time in places like Chicago. That's where I lived for 12 years. Yeah. And I love Chicago. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for Milwaukee. So we're in agreement there. Well, hey, Sasha, I'm really glad that we took the time to talk. That super interesting range of things we covered, and uh, I'm glad that we hit it all. Yeah, thank you so much. This is so much fun. Uh, so much fun. Thank you, Kuram. Really appreciate it.